we have been walking through a very interesting uh, and enlightening series the last couple of months of going through the Ten Commandments. Um, I, I've just been refreshed with um, digging back into these things that, that we just tend not to spend a whole lot of time talking about in church anymore, or as a group of people, really. The commandments are kind of this Old Testament thing, and we've moved on to New Testament things, um, but I've, I've just been refreshed by going through each one of these commandments and just spending some time reflecting on what do they tell us about who we are, what do they tell us about who God is, and, and what kind of instructions or illuminations do they even give us into our own lives and hearts. Um, for many of us who grow up in the church, the, the Ten Commandments are some of the first things we learn as, as kids. It's the first doctrine or theology we know, right? This story of Moses who frees the Israelites through God, and before he takes them through a 40-year journey through the desert, he goes to the mountain and comes back with these tablets of stone, and um, thank God that this is one of the first things you learn as a kid. You know, you do all these things, you're learning these these good rules, and as you grow up in the faith and you kind of just get a little bit older, we we move into the Bible and move on to the New Testament. We see that God has fulfilled the requirements of the law, the Old Testament, in the death and the resurrection of Christ and, and created this new covenant with us of intimate personal relationships. So we sometimes start to think of ourselves in, in mostly a New Testament frame of mind, right? There's people that go out there and they call themselves New Testament Christians. I don't know what that means, but I think what they're trying to say is, I'm under the New Covenant, right? I'm a New Testament Christian. Um, there's Bibles out there that will just have the New Testament, and if they're feeling maybe a little bit bad for the Old Testament, they'll throw the Psalms in with it. But you can buy Bibles that exclude almost the entire Old Testament. And so we can get into this this mind frame of, of not paying attention to the Old Testament. And Christ didn't come to destroy the law, right? He came to fulfill it. And so if we don't spend some time really digging through this stuff and, and learning from it and seeing Christ in the Old Testament, um, we can kind of sell ourselves short. Uh, for some of you, maybe, maybe you didn't grow up in the church. And so maybe you don't have that much of a frame of reference for the Ten Commandments. Maybe you know about them through... A, a fight to take them off of the courthouse steps, or you've seen them in movies or pop culture or different places have referenced them, and it's left you with the idea that the Ten Commandments is really just this list of things that God tells us we need to do, right? It's, uh, it's this list of things that if we really want to be on God's good side, this is what we're going to do. And, and maybe that's led you to believe even that Christianity itself is a religion full of rules, and so um, why would I come and just learn about all the things that I'm not supposed to do, right? So I hope as we've gone through this series, you've seen that either one of these perspectives is is not really true, or at best is incomplete. Um, the, the, the Old Testament is not just this um, old archaic system that we don't have to pay attention to anymore because Christ has, has brought us out of that, nor is it just this list of rules that we need to pay attention to and obey to try and earn God's favor, right? We know that we can't earn God's favor. So that's what we've been doing over the last couple of months. And um, one of the things I think that jumps out to me, and, and, and probably to you too, is that God is very intentional with the words that he chooses, right? He chooses his words very carefully. So as we spend time looking at the actual commandments itself, um, there's, there's a lot to be said about how the commandments are stated or how they're phrased. And, and God is very intentional with the actual words he uses, and he passes that same command on to us, right? We're not to ever take away or add to the words of God. Um, we owe a tremendous debt of, of spiritual gratitude to the thousands of people that have come before us that we can hold up a Bible in our hands and we have confidence this is 
this is the same thing that was actually written in the original text, right? This is, this is the product of the Holy Spirit inspiring scribes and, and copyists and, and people to preserve the Word of God over 2,000, 2,500 years. I mean, it's unheard of in modern literature. We've spent some time in the past talking about that. If you're ever interested in it, I would encourage you to, to dig into what's called textual criticism if you want to find out how reliable is the scriptures that we have in our hands. Um, but what you're going to find out is that... Um, we have, as a culture, as a, as a history of people, spent a lot of time copying, preserving, and transmitting the Word of God so that, that the future generations have an accurate copy. And we've done that with varying degrees of success, right? There's, there's differences in copies. There's, there's typographical errors. There's, there's mistakes in handwriting. But in the ancient culture, these people would scribes would would copy things by hand obviously no no printers no kinkos or anything like that that you could go to and they would develop these scrolls or these parchments where in most of the cases were animal skins and they would meticulously copy word for word and this was a, a bona fide profession if you were a scribe this is what you did for a living you would meticulously copy word for word what was in the bible and in some cases, you know, have you ever written something and reached for the whiteout or scratched it out? That doesn't really fly on a scroll so well. So whenever they would make a mistake on a scroll, there was a process out of reverence and respect for the word of God that they would burn the mistaken copy or they would bury it. They would do the same kinds of things for scrolls that had gotten so much use, they just started to degrade from time. They would take those and they would bury them to kind of symbolize the honor that was due to the word of God. And so we've got a tradition of that, and that's carried throughout the ages. When my wife and I, very very first date we ever went on, we went to a museum exhibit. And, you know, so, so we're starting to talk and to date. And she says, hey, would you like to come to a museum exhibit for me? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to date you. I'll probably do whatever you, wherever you want to go. If, if it's a reading of French poetry, I'm in. And I don't like poetry. So, all right. So she said, well, the museum exhibit's called the Ink and Blood exhibit. And I thought, oh. I've never heard of it. That sounds cool. I, I don't really know much about it, but I like ancient civilizations, right? And I'd, I'd love to learn about the Incans. They're, they were an interesting civilization. So, yeah, I'm in. Let's go. Some of you are laughing because you already know the mistake I made. So I show up to this museum exhibit expecting to see all this Mayan, Incan architecture, and it, you know, I misheard her. It was the Ink and Blood exhibit, which was this awesome exhibit of biblical artifacts and manuscripts and, you know, denarius coins and all that. I mean, I was blown away. I was so excited. But um, one, of the, one of the most interesting exhibits that was there is as we, we it, it was really cool the way it was set up. So you go and you start with the most ancient manuscripts. You've got um, fragments of Isaiah there. You've got denarius coins, you know, which is, is so awesome to be able to, you know, hear Jesus talk about a denarius and you can actually see what he was referencing, a physical artifact. It was awesome. But as you weave your way through, um, it talks about the invention of the printing press and all that kind of stuff. There's illuminated Bibles, really cool. So we get to one exhibit, and I had to pay attention to it because of the name. So it was called the Wicked Bible, or the Sinner's Bible. And some of you maybe have heard about this. If you went to the exhibit, you probably saw it. But what this is, is this was a Bible that was printed. So it was a print press Bible that was printed in 1631 by a couple of printers out of London. And what they did is they made a mistake in the process of printing the Bible. In the seventh commandment, they accidentally omitted a word. And so the commandment read, thou shalt commit adultery. All right. Pretty big word to leave out. 
It was so bad at the time, the king of England and the, the head of the church of England were, were so infuriated, they ordered all the copies be brought back and burned, right? We can't, we can't be encouraging adultery. So they did that, um, but obviously, by some accounts, less than a dozen copies survived, and we still have some of these copies today. It was such a serious infraction that the king fined the printers 300 pounds in 1,631 currency, which, which translates to roughly $65,000 U.S. today. So they got fined a massive amount of money, and then their printing press license was revoked. So they weren't even allowed to continue in business anymore. That's how serious it was. A couple of years later, one of the two ends up in prison, not necessarily because of this. Um, there was a sequence of events that led them to prison, but this was one of the things that they pointed to to say, hey, look, look, you've got a bad history of this. So um, words are important, so we take these very seriously. Um, So we've looked at each one of these commandments individually, and and we have to ask ourselves a few questions to start. First, what's the purpose of these commands? Why were they given to Moses, and why were they in turn given to us, passed on to us? Was this just a list of rules that made good sense for a starting society, a a people group coming out of Egypt about to form their own government? Was this just a logical list list of rules to give you on how to operate um, with morality, integrity in order to help society function? Were they just general guidelines or or were they just good aspirations for each Israelite to live by, you know, kind of like our uh, Declaration of Independence or something like that? And and as we've looked at each one, I think part of the answer we look like is, yeah, it it does function in those areas, right? It it just does. If society lived by these rules, it would be a lot better than it is right now, even in our context. Um, These are good aspirations to live by. But they're not just that. They're a lot more. And so what we see is that these commandments have what, what I would call surface commands, right? We read the text for what it is. Thou shalt not murder. Okay, that means I'm not to kill somebody else. But I think what we've seen as we've dug into these is that each one of these commandments has a deeper meaning. That's at the core of what the commandment really is. And so Jesus even blew that up for us by, if I haven't gone out and physically killed somebody, have I still kept the commandment of not murdering? And as we've dived into this a little bit, uh, I've been continually challenged on how many of these I've actually been able to keep. I think I'm 0 for 9 so far, so maybe today. Maybe today's the one. But they're self-examining statements. They're, they're, They're given to us so that we can see what's God's standard and also what, uh, as we benchmark our lives against them, where are we really at with this? And what does that say when we see where we're really at with them? So we're going to be looking at the final command today, the 10th one. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open with me to Exodus 20. We're going to start in verse 17. And then before we do that, why don't we, um, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning, uh, just once again thankful for your word, thankful for who you are. Lord, um, that you love us so much, that you would give us yourself, that you love us so much, Lord, that you would pour out your will to us in your word, Lord, that we would not be left alone on trying to figure out how to love you or how to live a life that would please you, Lord, but that you've spelled it out so clearly for us in the scriptures, Lord. And beyond that, you've given us your Holy Spirit, which interprets and applies that word to our lives. Be with us this morning as we dive into your word again, as we seek to know you better. We seek to see your heart, Lord. We seek to see ourselves clearly. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to work on our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So Exodus 20:17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, 
or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So at the start of the series, Trevor had a pretty uh, informative chart up there where he had the Ten Commandments broken into two segments. And it's, it's, Trevor didn't do that. It's, it's, it's broken up that way in Scripture. But the first four commandments are, are geared towards how do we relate to God, right? How do we love God? And the second six is how do we love each other? How do we relate to one another? So in this series of the second six, as we're learning about what it looks like to love or to relate to each other, this commandment has a couple of unique points to it um, that I want to highlight before we dive in. First, it's the longest of the commandments in this group. There are almost as many words in this one commandment than the previous five commandments put together, almost. Second, it's the only command in this series of six that gives us examples of of what, the, of what the command is trying to say, right? It's telling you, don't covet this, don't covet that. Interesting as well, it doesn't tell you not to covet. It doesn't say, thou shalt not covet. It says, thou shalt not covet, or you shall not covet your neighbor's house. It gives examples, and then it sums up the entire command in, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. But it doesn't say you should not covet. We're going to dive into that a little bit. So, this Ten Commandment is, is, is unique, and, and so as we look at it, I want to do three things this morning. First, I want to get a, a good understanding of what does it mean to covet. What does that mean when you covet something? And really, I want to look at what's the surface meaning of the commandment, and then what's the deeper implications for our lives. So that's the first thing I want us to do. Second is I want to understand why is coveting bad. Okay, well, we know, obviously, it's going to be bad if they tell you not to covet. If God says, don't do this, we know it's bad, but let's let's dive into why. What does it mean when we're doing that, and why is that a bad thing? And the third thing I want us to do this morning is to come to a, a point where we say, okay, we understand what coveting is, we understand why it's bad, how am I going to help it? How am I going to stop it? So what's the antidote for coveting? So that's our aim this morning. Um, but before we do any of that, we've got a little bit of work to do on the front end. We have to define coveting. We have to bring this word into our current day understanding. This is a word that it's not in most of our vocabularies. It's, it's kind of an old-timey word that we don't really use a whole lot. I, I don't use coveting a whole lot in my everyday language. So we're already at a bit of a, a linguistic disadvantage when we're looking at this covenant and if we're, or this commandment. If we're not careful, um, when something becomes so foreign that we have a hard time understanding it, our natural inclination is to pay less attention to it. So what I want us to do is, is to define this word and bring it into our current day understanding. And what we're going to see is that at the word might be kind of antiquated or unused or outdated, but the concepts that the word represents are still very much alive and well in our culture today. We don't really use covet, but what about desire, lust, aspiration, ambition, these are some words that we use quite frequently, and they're, they're not negative words, most of them, in, in a certain context, but they represent what coveting is, is going after. So we've got a definition uh, up on the board of what does it mean to covet. And there's an interesting thing about this. The first definition for covet is to wish for earnestly. That's it. It's not bad in and of itself. The second definition is to desire what belongs to another inordinately or culpably. Does that clear it up for you? Yeah, me neither. I had to define some more. 
inordinately means not within the proper or reasonable limits, immoderately, excessively, unrestrained in conduct. So to desire what somebody has, um, you're unrestraining in your conduct. You're excessively desiring what somebody has. Culpably, culpability, we're maybe a little bit more familiar with that word, but it's blame. Who's, who's, who's at blame here? Who's culpable for this? Deserving blame or censure, blameworthy. So I'm, I'm desiring something that belongs to somebody else in a blameworthy manner. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about coveting. So, well, in, in our context today. So the interesting thing to me is that Coveting is not a negative word in and of itself. It's a neutral word. It depends on the context of how it's being used. And that's a little bit different from some of the other commands we've seen. And I think that's why the Bible doesn't say, do not covet. It says, do not covet in this way. And it's weird, but Colin mentioned it this morning, and I I had the same experiences. I've heard people in a church setting come to me and say, hey, look, I'm coveting your prayers for this. And I'm like, oh, you're not supposed to covet. And then I stop to think about it. Okay, what you're saying is you're earnestly desiring my prayers for this. Okay, that's a good definition. The second definition is really what we're focused at this morning, is is coveting or or lusting after desiring something uh, excessively or out of bounds or in a blameworthy manner. So with this definition in mind, I want to take a look back again at Exodus 20:17, and let's read through this again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So what we're seeing here is that the Lord is telling the Israelites and in turn he's telling us to us as well that we're not to desire excessively or, or, or in a blameworthy manner what belongs to our neighbor not his possessions, not their spouse, not their position, all of these different things. And, and again, we have to take ourselves back into the, into the mind frame of the reader to this passage. Uh, a lot of this doesn't make sense to us if we're just looking at it on surface value. Okay, do not covet your neighbor's house. Okay, I get that. I'm, I'm not supposed to covet it. A, a neighbor has a nicer house than mine. I'm not supposed to covet it. Don't covet their spouse. Okay, that makes sense to me, right? I'm not supposed to, to, to covet or desire somebody else's spouse. Um, you shall not covet your, your neighbor's male servants or female servants. I'll hang around a whole lot of people that have servants, but if me and Donald Trump ever have lunch together, I'll try not to covet his servants, I guess. You shall not covet his ox or his donkey. All right, I don't know anybody that has anything more than a dog or a cat, and I don't want one of those, so I'm, no danger there. Um, but this is where we have to put ourselves in the mind frame of the reader. So the ancient Israelites and, and the ancient world by large was an agrarian society. And what that means is that a person's wealth was made up of or determined by the lands, the livestock, and the, the people that they possessed in a lot of cases. And so you really wouldn't have uh, uh, somebody in the ancient world with a large bank account, but they might have 25,000 heads of cattle. They might have a massive spread of land. And, and when you have that, you have servants to work the land, kind of like employees. You, you would have the cattle, you'd have the livestock, you'd have the grains, and all of those were symbols of wealth, of status, of provision. Um, when we look at Job, in the beginning of Job, as it outlines the, the blessing that God has given to Job, um, it's talking about his wealth in terms of, of land and this many heads of this animal, this many heads of that animal, uh, how many male servants and female servants he had. This was to paint a picture of an overwhelmingly rich person. And so when we look at this commandment, it's not just saying don't covet your neighbor's dog. It's saying don't covet their wealth. Don't covet their position. Don't covet their possessions. And that starts to make a little bit more sense to us when we put it in that context. So this is where... Now that we understand this, this is where we have to fight the impulse to kind of just dismiss this outright. Okay, maybe 
Maybe I like my house, you know, maybe I'm not coveting anybody's house. Maybe I'm not coveting anybody's spouse. You know, and I can kind of go through, just like we've done in each of the other commandments, and kind of check this one off the list. It says, I'm okay. But this is where we have to stop and, and take a real deep look within ourselves and honestly ask ourselves, am I coveting anything? And so a, a way that I thought uh, is a good way to get at that point is put yourself in the position of having ultimate power. You have ultimate power, and anything you don't like about your current circumstance, you could change with a thought. It takes no effort. You just have to think about it, and it changes. Put yourself in that mind frame. What about your current life would you change? What about your current set of circumstances would you alter? Maybe you don't like the job that you have, so maybe you would want another career or a different job. Maybe you're not happy with your spouse, and maybe you would change your spouse, or maybe you would get out of the marriage altogether. Maybe you don't like the car that you drive or, or, or the, the house that you live in, and so you're looking for a better car, a, a better house, and a better neighborhood. Um, maybe there's a lot of different things that you're not. Maybe you don't have the finances to take the vacations you'd like or to go to Disney as much as you want or, or to, to, to go travel the world as much as you want. What about your life would you change if you had the power and it just took an instant to change it? That answer is going to show you that... that whatever you can identify in there, or maybe there are some things that you could potentially be coveting. And some of these things are not bad in and of themselves, right? Um, a new job, a different house, a new car, they're not bad, inherently bad things to pray for. Maybe some of you have been praying for them for quite a while. Um, I certainly have. Maybe I've been praying about some of these things for so long that I start to get frustrated that I'm not seeing the result that I'm looking for. And that's where we have to check ourselves. Um, I came into the situation a couple of years ago with my job. So I had worked at uh, the previous company I'd worked for. I worked with them for several years. And in the beginning, you know, the company was doing well. I was learning. I was growing. I was advancing in the company. And then as the economy hit, uh, 2008, 2009, as it really started to tank, my job went down with it. And so I was still at this place, but um, the pay became very irregular. The, the company didn't have so many clients. There wasn't a lot of work for me to do. And it started to get very frustrating. I started to think, oh, I'm in a position I don't like, and so I want to get out of here. And, and I knew on one level, and on a base level, that I didn't want to do this without the Lord. Right? I didn't just want to just go look for another job and take it. Um, I, I knew I could easily jump out of the frying pan and into the fire. But I started to pray, Lord, I want a new job. You know, Look, I, I feel like my time is done here. Um, let's move on. Right, Lord? Let's move on, right? Right? <laughs> So I started praying for it, and, and this was a time, of, it, was, it was a trying period. Um, Becky was home with our first daughter. We lost our health insurance. The, the, the job didn't carry health insurance anymore. Um, the pay was very erratic and irregular. It would sometimes be two weeks, sometimes three, every once in a while four. You, you never knew when you get your check if it's actually going to clear. So it was a rush to the bank to cash it before everybody else did. And, and so these things that, uh, these things that, that regular employment is supposed to provide, I wasn't seeing the fruits of that. Now, when I stopped to think about it, I had a job. I had a job during a terrible recession period, and they did a great job of, of and their heart was to keep people employed. And even though it was a struggle to do that, they didn't have to. I mean, they could have easily have, have let me go when it was tough and not really suffered so much. But I wasn't in the moment. I wasn't thinking about it like that. So I started to pray, Lord, let's go. Come on, I need another job. 
And, and so I would start to vent my frustration to the Lord about the circumstances that I was in. Lord, this isn't fair. You know, I don't like this. Lord, this is tough. I haven't gotten paid in three weeks. And, and it's good in the one sense to be honest with the Lord about what you're feeling, right? He knows everything. You're not hiding anything from him. And so on one hand, it's good to be transparent to the Lord. Hey, Lord, this is just what I'm feeling. You know, I'm, I'm frustrated at this. But I found the more I voiced those frustrations to the Lord, the more embittered I became about the situation. Like I, I'm praying. How long have I been praying for a new job and you've still got me here, Lord? This is frustrating. Like, come on, don't you know I have a family to support? So, so this became a regular uh, a pattern of my prayers. And, and one day it hit me. And I was just thinking about this today. I was like, I don't remember exactly where I was. I was driving on Fifth Avenue North coming up to 66th Street on my way home from work. I don't know what the day was. I don't even know why I remember that. But and it, it hit me. Who's in charge of your circumstances? Okay, well, my confession as a Christian is that you, Lord, you're in charge of my circumstances. I look through scripture and I say, um, what do we know about God? All-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent. It takes no effort for him to do anything. He can think it. He can just will it into existence and it happens. So if God's in control of my circumstances and he has the ability to change my circumstances whenever he wants and he still hasn't done it, what's that mean? And that's the, that's the question we need to wrestle with and, and hopefully come to an answer with this morning is if God is all-powerful and can change my circumstances but doesn't, well, what does that mean? And we also have to take great care about who we turn to or where we turn to to get that answer. So there's two conflicting positions out there. The world is going to tell you that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in scripture, by the way, in case you've ever heard that. I remember when I first moved to Florida and I was sitting next to a friend of mine, I think I might have shared this before, I was sitting next to a friend of mine who, who ended up being a spiritual mentor to me and we were talking just off the cuff and I was like, yeah, well, God helps those who help themselves. And he's like, yeah, that's not in the Bible. And I said, what? and I thought about it for a second. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess that's pretty contrary to everything that scripture says. So yeah, that's not in the Bible. So. But the world's going to tell you if you don't like your situation, change it, right? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Go out there and make something happen. Don't just sit here and be in a situation you don't like. Go do something about it. But when I look at scripture, I see a different answer. I see a different pattern outlined. I look at Romans 8.28 where Paul writes, And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So what does that mean? All things work together. How many things is that? I guess that's all things, right? Does that even mean this thing? In most cases, yes. I'll, I'll explain that in a second. Psalm 23, I see that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So the, the picture here is the Lord is our shepherd, the guide. He brings us into where he wants us to be, these places of peace and rest. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because my shepherd is with me. His provision is outlined here. Matthew 10, we see, um, we see Jesus explain this a little bit more when he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So this is the knowledge of details that God has, right? Two sparrows are sold for a penny. They're worthless, essentially. But not one of them perishes without God knowing. He knows the amount of hairs that are on your head. For some people, that's easier to count than others. But <laughs> what does that mean? What benefit does it give you if God knows the hairs on your head? Does that, does that help him? 
rule the universe? Probably not so much. Does it help you if you know the number? No. It's not speaking about a functional necessary knowledge, but the depths of his understanding, the depths of his knowledge of us. And so then we come back to the question, okay, if if, if God has promised to work things out for my good, he's all powerful, he's my shepherd, he has all knowledge, and he doesn't do the things I want him to do, what does that mean? Well, in most cases, that's going to mean that you're exactly where God wants you to be. Now, I want to clarify something real quick before I move on. Is There is instances where we make decisions or we make choices that are contrary to the will of God, right? We sin. We make a bad choice, and there are consequences for the bad choices that we're in. And so when I'm saying that you're exactly where God wants you to be, I want to clarify that if you've made a bad choice, if you're in a point where you're, you're kind of suffer, suffering the immediate consequences of sin, I don't want you to take comfort and say, well, it's just where God wants me to be, so it's, it's not a big deal. And, and I want to clarify that even, is when we make bad decisions, we go outside of the will of God, and we come to a place where we're suffering the consequences, we're not lost. We're not doomed, right? As soon as we recognize, we acknowledge, we repent of that decision, and we trust in God for the future, then he starts leading us back into the path. He puts us right back on the path that he wants us to go. But if you're not walking in sin, if you haven't made this huge sinful choice and you're bearing out the consequences now, but you just find yourself in a situation that's difficult to be in, then my understanding of Scripture is, yeah, that's where God wants you to be. You're there where he wants you to be. So if God can change my circumstances and he doesn't, then he's got me where he wants me, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when the situations are hard, especially when the situations are hard, right? If God can provide me with anything and he doesn't, then that means that it wouldn't be best for me, right? Paul says all things work together for good. And if it's not given to me by God, that means that's good. And if I would have gotten what I've asked for, it would not have been good for me. That's the confession that we have as Christians. So when I don't understand that, and I'm venting to the Lord like I was for so, for so many years, I find myself in the precarious position of complaining to God about God. You know, and if I was honest with my prayer, it really would have looked something like, come on, God, you've you got to do something about this God character. He's bringing me down. You know, help me out here. And while that sounds silly, and nobody would ever make that prayer overtly, we make it subconsciously. We make it in our spirit sometimes with our attitude. And this is the heart of what coveting is. When I covet, I'm declaring to God that I don't have enough. I'm not well-provisioned. I'm lacking, and I've received less than I'm owed or that I even deserve. And so I'm here, but I want to be there. I have this, but I wish I had that. You've provided God, but it's not enough. I need more. And so that's what we're saying to God when we are coveting something. And this is what we need to see and realize, because this has dangerous implications for our life. Coveting is a sure sign that we've taken our eyes off of Christ and placed them firmly back on ourselves. The reality is when we covet... We've taken a break from being satisfied in Christ, and we're looking towards other things to satisfy us. Jesus says this in Luke 12:15, and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And if you think about it, this makes sense. When we covet, it's not really ultimately about the things, right? If I'm coveting power or position or possession... It's not that I'm, I'm after those things. On a deep root level, I'm after what I think those things will bring me. If I want more money, 
I think that that's going to bring me peace or joy or security. If I want a different position, I feel like it's going to bring me satisfaction. Um, and, and these are the things that Christ has promised that we will find in him. And so when we covet other things, what we're saying is, I don't trust in you to be the provider of these things. I'm going to look to this possession to give me what I really ultimately want, joy, love, peace, security. And scripture is so clear that anytime you ever look for anything like that, outside of Christ to be the satisfier of that, you're guaranteed to set yourself up for disappointment. Nothing will satisfy completely and nothing will satisfy permanently apart from Christ. And that's how we're created. We're created with that desire and that desire can only be filled in Christ. So there's a secondary danger with this as well. And we see this if we stop to actually really dig into what our confession is as a Christian. Who's in charge? Whose will do we submit to? Who calls the shots, right? The biblical answer for all these questions is God. God's in control. We we surrender our will to his because we know his is better. We lay down our lives and follow him, right? We take up our cross daily and we follow him. So if this is true, if God is in control and he has promised that he's going to provide for us always, then what are we saying when we don't trust in that? We have been brought into a kingdom with our father, If you are a Christian, you are a son or a daughter of God. I mean, think about that for a minute. You are a child of God. You're not a servant in his kingdom. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. We're a friend to Christ. We are an heir, a joint heir with Christ. I mean, I can't can't even understand what this means, and I can't overstate it enough that you are now intimately connected with God as a Christian. You are a son, a daughter, and and maybe you have a son or a daughter, and you know what that relationship looks like, and that's a flawed version of the picture that God gives us as our perfect father. And so he adopts us into his family, and then he sets us about his business, growing his kingdom. We're not hired hands. We're growing our father's kingdom. But how can we do that if our eyes are so focused on our own lack or our own perceived lack of what we need? So I want us to spend a little bit of time of of looking at the purpose that we have here. (laughs) Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says, thank you, buddy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So we see Paul telling the church at Ephesus that this is not a recent decision, right? Our actions in the garden didn't catch God off guard. The Christ coming to the cross was not plan B. That before the ages began, before creation even happened, that God knew what would happen and still in his great love walked forward with creation, knowing that Christ, Christ knowing that he was going to have to come to the cross, but he predestined that as adopting us through that mechanism. And so by doing that, he set us, up, he set us apart from before the foundations of the world. He's given us a job to do before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 2, he says a little bit later, For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only did God declare that he would adopt us as sons before the foundations of the world, he's orchestrated a purpose. He's got good works for us to do. And so when we are adopted into the household of God, God is now our father. He says, all right, now I've got a job for you to do. And we're to be about our father's business. That's what he's given us. 
in Second uh, Timothy 1, 8 through 9, it says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So again, Christ, we've been born into a, uh, as a new creation through Christ, and the purpose is he's got work for us to do. And, and he's got relationship for us, so it's not all about duty, but it's about relationship, and that relationship moves us to glorify our Father. And so we see that when we come into that relationship, we're reborn into a kingdom with a mission. And we all have a critical part to play in this process, right? There's no such thing out there as an appendix Christian. There's nobody out there that's not really needed. No matter where you're at, no matter what your position, no matter what your job, no matter what your status, when you are reborn into the kingdom of God, you have a crucial part to play in your own sphere of influence, in your own job, in the people you interact with, in in the personality that you have you are you are engaged for the mission of growing the kingdom and you are equipped right where you're at to do that work so when we covet things what we're telling god is you haven't given me enough to do what you're actually asking you're actually asking me to do um we don't when we don't pay attention to that um we're saying that god your provision isn't enough And, and if we believe that god can design us to be his before the ages began and can create a good work for us to do, don't we also need to believe that he's going to be able to provide us or will provide us with everything we need to do that mission? What kind of a father is he? Is he kind of father that sends us out on a fool's errand or a suicide mission without the the resources or the equipping we need to accomplish it? No, that's not who he is. That's not his character at all. So we're going to see in James 4, 1 through 3 when he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So here James is telling us that you don't have what you need because you're not asking the Father for it. And when you do ask the Father for stuff and you don't receive it, it's not because you're asking in a good way and God's saying, no, figure it out on your own. You're asking selfishly because you want to spend whatever you get and whatever you're asking for on your own desires that are apart from the kingdom. And as as a good father, he's not going to equip us with things that's going to hurt us, right? I'm not going to give my four-year-old daughter a steak knife and say, go ahead and figure out how to cut your chicken nuggets yourself. I mean, that's I'm going to be in the hospital later. It's just the way it is. So as a good father, he's not going to give us things that are going to hurt us, but he's also not going to not give us the things that we need to do the job that he's called us to do. And that's his promise. Jesus says this in Luke 11, 9 through 13. I tell you, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's a surefire way to guarantee every one of your prayers is answered favorably. We have to make our desires his desires. Our will bends to his. When our will is his will, then his answer is an overwhelming yes to whatever we ask for because we're asking for things 
motivated by the spirit we're asking for things that are that are god is god can't wait to answer that question as yes like god empower me to do your work yes god help me to do the things you want me to do yes god give me favor in this situation to spread your glory and to and to make disciples of every nation yes 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 that's god's god wants to say yes to everything and he does when our will is in line with his and when it's not when our will is not in line with his his answer is no and that's the perfect loving thing for him to do he's i'm not going to give you something that's not good for you and that's the heart of our father not only does he know how to give perfect gifts he knows how to provision us perfectly for what he's called us to do but he doesn't even stop there he doesn't just give us the resources we need to live life well he gives us himself he puts his his holy spirit within us a, a, a person of the trinity of the godhead comes to dwell within each one of us when we become a christian that means that god not only has given you everything you need to do the job he's called you to do he's given you himself to help you do it I mean, what more could we really ask for so we're seeing that when we tell god when we covet we're, we're telling god that that what you're giving me it's just not enough and we see as he's gone so far to dwell with us, uh, dwell within us in the Holy Spirit, um, that that's just not true. So, so now we've seen coveting, we've seen why it's bad, but how do we fight against it? How do we stop coveting? What's the what's the answer? What's the antidote? Paul says this in First Timothy six six through eight. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing. With these, we'll be content. So contentment is the polar opposite of coveting. Coveting says, I don't have enough. Contentment says, I've been well supplied. And so this is a discipline that we really have to cultivate in order to keep ourselves from coveting things in, in a variety of different ways. Hebrews 13, uh, 5 says it like this. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And this is the heart of contentment. When we stop to think about this, that he has given us himself, when we're coveting, really what we're saying is, God, you're not enough. You're not enough for me. And we don't. when we think about it like that, we say, well, I would never say that to God. But our heart and our actions sometimes lead us to act that way. And so when we find out that we're coveting things, we're really telling God, in this area, you're not enough for me. And, and we know, emphatically know, that God is all-sufficient. We're going to see that here in just a minute. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, uh, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. If you're one of those people that, that likes to make notes in your Bible or underline things, um, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see a certain word repeated several times, it's a good idea to pay attention to that, even underline it or circle it. And so... God says all a lot here. So he's going to make all grace abound to us that we have all sufficiency in all things at all times. So I'm trying to figure out what situation does that not cover, and I'm coming up blank. He's sufficiently provisioning us in all things, in every area, at all times. This is a complete picture of perfect provision. And so when we're content with what God has given us, when we're content with the lot that he's given us, with our job, with our position, and we can pray for things, it's not bad to pray for them, but always under the under the, 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 the roof of, the banner of, God, whatever your will is, I just want to do it. And yeah, I would like another job, or this job is a challenge, but Lord, give me the give me the strength to walk well in this area that you've given me. Whether that looks like another job, or it looks like me doing something different, um, when we are content with Christ, when we're content with God, we have everything, and there's nothing that we lack. 
So one final aspect of this command that we need to take a look at is is what is it what does coveting prevent us from doing, right? So it prevents us from loving God and it prevents us from loving our neighbor. So when we covet and we say, God, you're not enough, well that's that's obviously it's it's disparaging God and his his authority and ability. But it's also it's impossible for us to love our neighbor when we're coveting their possessions or their power or their authority. And a lot of times what coveting does is it creates a culture of comparison. We assign comparative worth to somebody else. We say, they have that nice house, but they shouldn't have that. Or they have that position, but man, I, I would be way better in that position. So not only are we not loving God, but we're not loving our neighbor. And so as we've gone through uh, the Ten Commandments especially, um, we see that love is, is at the core of everything. C.S. Lewis has a, a good quote that he talks about when he, when he talks about pride or, or coveting, uh, when he says that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. So when we covet somebody's possessions, we're really, we want more than they have, or we're keeping up with the Joneses. Or, or, and again, all of these things are us trying to find satisfaction in things instead of in Christ, right? I want to feel good. I want to feel worth, worth something. I want to feel peace or, or secure. And we go after the things rather than, than, than Christ. So this is the unifying theme of all the commands that we've studied over the last few months is, is love. And so when you look at, if you look in the New Testament, you try and you do a Google search or you, you look through your Bible and you say, let me, let me look at all the ways where it says that we can fulfill the law. You get a, a pretty unifying theme here. Galatians 5.14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, 8 through 10 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In Matthew, Jesus answers the Pharisees, um, in Matthew 22, 34 through 40 on this question. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we see that the law is all motivated by love. And instead of us trying to keep a list of 10 commandments, which if we really wanted to go by the law, there's a lot more than 10, and checking them off that I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, Jesus tells us, go right to the source. Love God. Love people. That's how you keep the law. That's how you live the life that God has given you. It would have been quite a significantly shorter sermon series if we just jumped right to that conclusion. But it's good for us to walk through some of the examples of what that is. But, but that's the ultimate goal of the law. Love God, love people. When we want to know what it looks like to love God well, we can look at the law. We can look at the commandments. When we want to look like, uh, we want to see what it looks like to love our neighbors well, we can look at the law. We can look at the commandments. When we want to see what perfect love looks like, we can look at Christ who is God's perfect expression of love, who came down and paid the price for us on the cross and raised up so that we could have eternal life with him. Jesus leaves us with a command here at the end of John, and this is what we're going to close with this morning. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So we see here that if we're missional-minded, if we want to follow the command that Christ gives us to make disciples of all nations, if we want to know what does it look like to be a good Christian, right, to, to live this life that we have with Christ well, it's summed up in love. Love God. Love each other. And that's our challenge that we get from the law, but not only the law. We get it through the entirety of Scripture is love. That is the ultimate law to obey. So I hope you've seen that over the last couple of months. Um, God, first and foremost, he leads us in love. He is the one who generates a love. God, we love because God first loved us. While we were still enemies of God, he loved us. And through that love that we receive from God, we can then share it to other people. So as, as, we, as we process through this, as we go out after, after closing down this series, what I want us to think about is, first, let's reflect on the love that God has given us. That's the first thing we have to do. We can't do step two without this. But let's reflect on the love that God has displayed for us, and then let's reflect that love out to those around us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful for your love that... When we dive into your word, Lord, we're, we're constantly assaulted with how much you love us. And, and it's so easy to get our eyes off of that, Lord, and, and to, to dictate the terms of what love should look like, Lord. But you are perfect, and you love us perfectly. Father, I'm so humbled by your love. I'm so challenged by your love, Lord. Help us to understand your love for us more. Only then can we look like and we, we, we understand what it looks like to love each other. So, Father, everyone here, whether they're close to you or far from you, Lord, my prayer right now is that your love would just pour out on them in such a strong way, Lord, that they would just, they would just feel your love, Lord. And that, Father, once we felt that love, that we would respond to you in love and that we would turn to others and pour that love out to a hurting world that desperately needs to see you, Lord. And that by our love going out to the world, your kingdom is, is grown and glorified. We thank you for your spirit, Lord, that you've given to live within us to do this. We know we can't do it on our own, Lord. So we're so thankful that you have indwelt us and that in you we have everything. We are well supplied. We have an abundance of provision. And we have the very God of the universe within us helping us to do this. I ask that you be with us as we go out into the week, into our lives this week, Lord. And uh, be with us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.